And now we turn to the Word of God, and I'm going to ask Sam, who's a member of the staff, to read from the Word of God tonight. We have two readings this evening. The first is from Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 16, and the second is from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. The first reading, Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for a city. And the second reading Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Tonight we have to give our first lecture a very long-standing friend and supporter of the Christian Institute over the years. He's talked to us on a number of occasions over a period of time in years past. And it's a great joy to have Professor Mackay with us tonight. Uh, he's a renowned Old Testament scholar and is principal of the Free Church College in Edinburgh. I'm sure we will learn greatly tonight. Welcome, and we do look forward to what you have to say to us. The temple, the land, and paradise restored vast amount of area to cover. And it's very easy to adopt a mindset which assumes that what's influential, what's life-shaping, is going to be difficult to understand and rather abstruse. But that's not really the way things often work out. When we're dealing with basic perceptions whether at the level of an individual's basic beliefs or at the level of a culture, a civilization, 
It can be difficult when you're part of that civilization to identify the most potent influences that are at work. But once they've been identified, it's generally possible to formulate in quite simple terms which are the main ideas that are shaping either an individual's life or the life of a generation. The basic assumptions of a culture, the presuppositions that you don't have to argue for because everyone sort of accepts them. They have profound implications, but in themselves, the options are often quite simple. And that was impressed on me recently when I was looking again at Wayne Grudem's book on systematic theology. Because he uses five simple diagrams to assist us in conceptualizing the world that we live in, the options that are available, and which one it is that we adopt. Quite simple diagrams, basically using circles. Circles used to represent reality. And if you're trying to work out what the basic mindset of Western civilization is, it can be diagrammed as one big circle and in the middle labeled the universe. Our modern civilization in the West assumes that that's all there is. The universe, material, physical matter. And we live in a culture that promotes the consensus how do you live? You focus on the material. You amass as many possessions, money, as, you can, as much as you can. A materialistic world with a materialistic agenda. But there are other ways of approaching things. We're constantly seeing another view of the world, again a big circle representing all of reality. But in Eastern civilization, they place in the middle of that circle not the universe, not matter, but God. The pantheistic option. Any philosophy that sees reality as emanating from God, coming out of God, and yet still being part of him, never totally separate. Any viewpoint like that is basically pantheistic. They'll use the word God, but because the whole universe is God, God is no longer a distinct personality. He's no longer viewed as unchanging because the universe changes, and if the universe is God, then God too must change. And God's no longer holy because there is evil in the universe, and the universe is what God is himself. And ultimately, pantheistic systems deny the significance of the individual. An individual should be aiming, if everything is God, to be like God and to blend himself in with the universe, become part of it. Two basic conceptions, viewing the universe as one reality, in one case material, in the other case God, and neither really facing up to the challenges that exist. And in a dualistic 
system. If the top level is God and the lower level is the universe, how the, in a dualistic system, these two have existed eternally, side by side. In a dualistic worldview, there are two competing influences, God and matter. And matter, the universe we know, has evil associated with it. And we have two circles, they're not intersecting, and we draw lines from them and they go off the edge of the page because we don't know which level, the level of God or the level of matter, which one is going to be the ultimate victor in the tension that exists in this world. In dualism, God's no longer creator. The world's been there as long as he has. He's not lord of the universe. The world isn't inherently good. And the final destiny of humanity and the universe is obscure, undetermined. But there's also the deistic approach. Two circles again, God and the universe. Deism acknowledges God as creator, one who's far greater than the universe, but God's the divine clockmaker. He's wound up the clock of this universe and leaving it to run on its own. Two circles and at present no connection between them. Yes, the lower circle of the universe exists because God brought it into existence, but in deism, he's withdrawn, left it to itself, no longer actively involved. A fully orbed scriptural presentation wants to assert the transcendence of God, that there are two levels of reality, the divine and creation, The transcendence of God is saying that he is other than this realm that he has brought into existence. He exists independently of it, is infinitely exalted above it. And yet this God is also immanent. Not imminent, about to come, but immanent. He is present. He is remaining in creation. He has never deserted what he has brought into existence. And so in his little diagrams, Gurudam tries to bring this out by joining the two circles, the circle that represents the reality of God and the circle that represents the reality of this universe. He joins together with a thick arrow coming from God and pointing down and touching into this realm in which we exist. The God of the Bible is no abstract deity. He is not removed from creation. He is not without interest in it. On the contrary, he is intensely involved. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, as Job asserted. In the New Testament, Paul affirms that God gives to all men Life and breath and everything. In him we live and move and have our being. Indeed, in one place, Paul brings together God's transcendence and his imminence, 
when he speaks of one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. So we have there the challenge, what sort of universe do we live in? If we're trying to work out how we view the world that we're in, have we got the world of the one circle, whether we call it material or God? Or have we a world of two circles recognizing that God exists? And do we have the scriptural view, not merely saying God exists, but God is the one who comes and deals with this world? His basic diagram was God above the world below and God related to interacting with sustaining the world below. There was the thick line with the arrowhead coming from deity down to the world. And what struck me was that there was no arrow going in the other direction. Now, it couldn't be an arrow indicating dependence because the world at that level doesn't contribute anything to God. But the scriptural representation of reality inevitably involves a heavenward movement of a response of trust, of gratitude, of praise. It is not merely that God sustains this world and the flow is all downward in one direction. Or at present it might be a very faint line, a very broken line that ascends heavenwards. But ultimately in the outworking of God's purpose, this dependent universe is designed to strongly signal, signal clearly a response echoing back to the God who gave it being and the God who sustains it in existence. It's essential to a Christian worldview to recognize that God didn't just create material existence. He didn't just create vegetable life. He didn't just create animal life, but distinctly human life. Man in his own image endowed with the capacity to rule and structure the realm that he's been given authority over, but also with the inbuilt capacity to rise heavenward and relate to the God who's brought him into existence. In one respect, as Francis Schaeffer used to repeatedly remind us, There's a division in the order of existence which places mankind below the dividing line. Mankind along with the rest of the created realm because our existence is derived, it is dependent, it is finite. Forever we are reminded that we are dust from the earth. But you can look at reality where the dividing line comes below mankind or where mankind separated from the other orders of creation because endowed with the image of God after his likeness, able to communicate meaningfully with God and capable of willing, spontaneous praise. 
And by this time, you're probably saying, I thought he was going to be talking about the temple and the land and paradise restored. But really, that's where we're beginning. In terms of the imminence of God, the God who works into this universe, the God who has created mankind to respond to him, we have to realize that the first scenario Adam and Eve were placed in was in a garden. Now, nowadays, gardens suggest lawns and rose beds. And in my own particular instance, a very active badger who's digging up my lawn as well. (laughs) But in Scripture, the basic idea of a garden was an enclosed space, a delimited piece of territory. Finite man wasn't left overwhelmed by the magnitude of the task assigned him. He was told, fill the earth. And God graciously assigned him a specific area and directed him to start from there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Wasn't that God withdrew the overarching program? He didn't say, no, forget about filling the earth. That goal remained. But he said, start from here. Eden was to be expanded, or perhaps it was to be replicated throughout the earth. Adam's descendants would grow. They would spread out and colonize the created realm to the glory of God. And in all this, the God who was present, the God who is imminent, was seeking responsive fellowship from mankind. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Catechism tells us. And that was just as true in Eden as it is subsequently. We're told in Genesis 3 that the Lord God was walking in the garden. It may be that on that particular occasion it was the judgmental presence of God who was there. But it could also indicate that this was what God was accustomed to do. The garden was the scene of interaction between heaven and earth. Because there is this other aspect to our view of the world we live in. It is not just a world created by God and sustained by him, but a world that is intended to rise up with praise to him, to interact with him. Now, of course, we know it didn't last. Mankind rebelled, threw into disarray the harmonious relationship between the king of the universe and his earthly representatives, his viceroys over creation. But the history of mankind didn't stop at that point because God remained true to his purpose and he wouldn't allow it to be subverted by human disobedience and failure. He graciously intervened. Yes, there was judgment, but there was also a divine recovery program put in place. 
And it is that recovery program that sets the background for these intertwined themes of the land, the city of Jerusalem, the tabernacle, the temple, the church. We're looking at God's recovery program as it specifically pertains to redemptive renewal of fellowship with the immanent God, the God who draws near to his people so that there may be a complete and living and intimate relationship between them. And that ideal isn't completely recovered until paradise is restored. I often like to puzzle my students by saying to them, if you want to understand eschatology, you've got to understand protology in the first place. Which is a complicated way of saying, if you want to understand how it's all going to end, you've really got to look back and see how it all began. Because it began with God saying, it's very good. It began with God saying, this is what I want. And it is the glory of the gospel message. Not just that God is going to get us back to what was very good. But that in fact he is going to more than restore what was there. The imminence of God is going to be disclosed in a more extensive fashion. There is the Emmanuel principle. God with us which was worked out and heightened in supreme form by the incarnation of the Son of God. In him there is revealed the full extent of God's committed care, God's committed concern. And the reality of the incarnate Savior is at the heart of the new creation. He is alive forevermore and his place is there at the very center of what is not simply paradise restored, but paradise more than restored. The privileged existence of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth, transcends the bliss of Eden that was very good because of the Lamb in the midst of the throne permanently and perpetually, uniting deity and humanity, the imminent God, the God who is near. The two circles bridge not merely with a thick line of an arrow, but by the person of Christ. Now it pleased God that that final outcome of the new Jerusalem wasn't achieved immediately. It came through the flow of redemptive history over the ages and the generations. And we're called on to study how God has worked out his purposes and how he continues to work them out. But we're now in the New Testament age. That doesn't mean that we're to leave the Old Testament on the shelf to gather dust. But that as we look at it, we're to see there that it's part of the same divine recovery program that is still going on. It relates to stage one, and we're now in stage two. But it's not two different programs. 
There hasn't been a, a change of mind on the part of God. It's not two programs, but the one integrated program in two phases. Indeed, in three phases. There was before the coming and the ministry of Christ. There is this intermediate age in which we now live after Christ has come for the first time. And there is stage three, the consummation, when our Lord comes again. So that as we're looking back, we're aware that we have a far greater insight, knowledge, than the Old Testament believer had. And yet we're also aware that we ourselves have not yet arrived. We're still seeing in a glass darkly. We still only know in part. But looking back, we can learn much. And that's why I've got to focus in on one area now in particular. And I'm wanting to focus in on God's covenant with Abraham. And I want to look at four matters in relation to that covenant that are concerned with the reality of God imminent, working in creation, and what it is that God is, has been seeking to bring about over the ages and the generations. Now, two of these themes are the explicit promises of the Abrahamic covenant, seed and land. And the other two themes, wealth and the Holy Spirit, are not directly addressed in the disclosure of the covenant to Abraham, but we've really got to grapple with them now because they affect our New Testament understanding of what's going on. But can I again stress, we're looking at this from a Christian point of view. And I mean by that particularly something like Paul's statement in Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, verses 7 to 9. So, looking at Abraham, what are we doing? We're looking at the gospel preached beforehand. And that implies, firstly, that there's essential continuity. The gospel we now have is essentially the same as what was revealed to Abraham in his day. But the beforehand also suggests that there is now greater clarity and comprehensiveness. There were aspects of the situation that were still clouded to Abraham, aspects that could only become clarified through the progress of events themselves. It is the gospel, but it's the gospel beforehand, before the events. Now, one basic plank of that gospel is the promise of the seed, offspring, descendants. Translations vary in the, the way they render uh, the term. 
But the key point is that it's the same word as was used in the initial statement of God's recovery program in Genesis 3.15. You remember God addressed the serpent? Or rather, he addressed Satan who had taken possession of the serpent and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God did not allow the unholy alliance that the serpent had created with the woman to endure. He broke it up and set tension, hostility between the two and at the same time promised that there would come one who would be descended from the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. And when God came and intervened in Abraham's life, it was in terms of moving towards the consummation of that promise. He sovereignly called Abraham. He promised him numerous offspring in a resumption of the original creation mandate. I will multiply you greatly, he said to Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Abraham, this is my way of reclaiming my creation through you. And Abraham understood that he was privileged to be a conduit through whom the blessing of salvation was to flow, through whom God's purposes were going to be further worked out. Through the circumstances of his life, it was brought home to him that this was God's control. It wasn't going to be through the exercise of human arrangements that he was to have an heir. Neither an Eliezer of Damascus being given his estate, nor Ishmael, born from Abraham, was going to be the chosen seed. The line of messianic promise was through Isaac. In Isaac shall your seed be called. Isaac, the child who was given by God against all the physical uh, probabilities that the human mind could evaluate. As Paul pointed out, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your seed be called. This means it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And that's a familiar argument that makes clear that Abraham was in a position to appreciate the spiritual dimension, the overwhelming spiritual dimension of the promise given to him regarding seed. It wasn't a matter of simply physical procreation. It was a matter of accomplishment of the divine purpose reclaiming mankind so as to have relationship with them in spiritual fellowship. The remnant principle was in operation back there. Abraham knew it in his own circumstances. God's sovereign choice determined the reality of spiritual blessing, not mere external circumstances, no matter how privileged they were. And that seed promise culminated in Christ. 
But it didn't, it didn't end there. It doesn't end there. Because you remember Paul concludes, if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. A promise that culminates in Christ, but continues till the end of the age. So Abraham there was looking forward to the tremendous reality that is now so very much clearer to us with the coming of Christ. But the second area of blessing that was very prominent in the Abrahamic covenant was that of the land. It's a more controversial theme. But I want to argue that the very same mode of interpretation applies to it as we are accustomed to applying to the promise of seed. But why? Why was there a promise of land? The question why doesn't really arise with the same intensity as regards the seed. We can see that there was a chosen line of descent because it was looking forward to the coming of Christ. Why was the promise made of land? Because salvation is not just a matter of freedom from the guilt and curse of sin. It also involves freedom into fellowship with the imminent God. It's not just rescue from the land of bondage. It's entry into the land of promise and residence, residence there. And you know the Old Testament's focus is on one land. The land, the land of promise. A place like no other on earth. Because it was the scene of God's interaction with his people. It's portrayed as a good land. Characterized as the land flowing with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites were told by Moses, the land you are entering to take possession of isn't like the land of Egypt from which you've come. The land you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Why? Because it was catching, reflecting the copious provision of Eden. When we think of Eden, we tend to focus on two very specific trees. But you find in Genesis 2.9 a description of its bounty. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And in the land of promise, there is a reassertion of the bountiful provision of the God who cares. It is Eden recaptured in part, but it's just as much the new heavens and the new earth anticipated. And God's covenant provision always has that third strand. 
The covenant is often summarized as, I will be their God and they will be my people. But there is the third strand, I will dwell with them. And that's what gives the meaning to the whole of this relationship. It would be possible for God to say, I will be their God and they will be my people and I'll keep them at arm's length. I I will rule over them, but I will be distant and they will be far off. But no, it is the imminent God, the God who delights to be in the realm that he's created. I will dwell with them. And that's what we see when we follow the patriarchs moving around Canaan, building altars. Where did they build them? They built them where God had met with them. The promised land was being divinely designated as the zone of God's self-disclosure. As Jacob realized at Bethel, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. And later on he's directed, go and make an altar to the God who appeared to you at Bethel. And that's what's taken up in the tabernacle and the temple. It's this ongoing story of God's recovery program of a living relationship between himself and his people. He is not just simply concerned with wiping the slate clean regarding sin. He is wanting to draw into a fellowship with them. There was no altar in Eden. Mankind hadn't yet fallen. The patriarchal altars, an awareness of their sin, reflect an awareness of their sin, of the need for redemptive renewal on their part before they can enter into fellowship with God. And that was the message of the tabernacle, the temple. The strategic importance of the bronze altar. You couldn't go from the gateway into the courtyard to the inner sanctuary without encountering the massive obstacle of the bronze altar in the outer courtyard. The requirements of the altar had to be met before fellowship entry into the presence of God was possible. Any who wished to have fellowship with the God of heaven had to appear on his terms having satisfied the demands of the altar. The temple was the earthly focus of the intersection of the infinite with the finite, of God with his people. And the significance of Jerusalem was the same. Uh, Someone once put it, I forget who just now, Jerusalem wasn't really a city that had a temple in it. Jerusalem was a temple around which there happened to be a city. This temple in Jerusalem, they they are in Scripture very much at the same level. And that was the significance of the land also. It was recovered territory which foreshadowed access to God in the midst of pagan blackness. The land was set apart because of the city and the city was set apart because of the temple and the temple was set apart by the indwelling presence of the glory cloud in its inmost chamber. And those were all real. 
in their time. But they were also divinely designated symbols of what was to come. Not undermining their reality, but they were not the end in themselves. They were part of the beforehand of the gospel. Part of what is now consummated in Christ. And the patriarchs, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, were making it clear that they were seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one, ultimately one where not only Christ was present, but Christ himself. Now, there are two things that have to be emphasized. Land and seed were covenanted promises. Part of God's administration of his redemptive kingdom. And neither blessing would be enjoyed apart from obedience. The enjoyment of the covenant depends on the obedience of those to whom God comes and says, Go, as he said to Abraham, go from the security of the land you know to where I tell you. It is the obedience of those who, to whom God comes as he came to Abraham and said, walk before me and be perfect so that I may bring to fulfillment my covenant I've made with you. But it's also the case that the heavenly destiny anticipated by these earthly realities, was never realized apart from Christ. And that's what particularly John's gospel makes clear to us. We're all familiar with the words in John's prologue. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, Tented among us. Jesus is the new tabernacle of God. Jesus is the place where the imminent God is present with his creation, with his people. And the glory presence that was once found in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple is now located in Christ. We have seen his glory. Glory as, the, as of the only Son of the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is in Christ, God and man, that the gap between the transcendent God and his world is bridged. And in the next chapter of John's Gospel, the same idea is present in the narrative about the cleansing of the temple where Jesus compares the temple to his own body. Destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. And in case you make the mistake so the Jews, that the Jews made of thinking the temple was Herod's temple that had been being built for so many years, it's immediately clarified he was speaking of the temple of his body. God's presence with his people no longer a matter of a structure of stone and wood, cedar wood from Lebanon. A matter of God manifest in the flesh in Jesus. In speaking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus desacralizes both the Samaritan temple in Mount Gerizim and the temple in Jerusalem. 
The hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why? Because the messianic age has arrived in the person of Christ. Worship is no longer bound to one particular geographical location. It is now bound to one particular bridge between heaven and earth. Christ himself. And we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Free from such spatial restrictions. Now that's not to be understood in some sort of Gnostic fashion. It's not a denial of the goodness of the physical. Eden was physically real. The body is part of God's good creation. And the prospect of life and it's of the essence of the Christian message is not of some soul existence, is not of some blessing in a detached fashion, but in the harmony of soul and resurrected bodily existence, already true of the risen Lord and destined to be true for all who are his. And the land promise was given and anchors Not just the imminence of God, but also the physicality of his creation, including his redeemed creation. Can I just point you to one other text from John's Gospel? John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now the vine was a symbol of many things in Israel, but especially it was a symbol of the land itself. Psalm 80 had described Israel as the vine, divinely transported from Egypt to Canaan. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. A similar sort of figures used by Jesus himself in Mark 12, in the parable of the vineyard, where the land of Israel is described as the vineyard from which the owner seeks fruit. And the people aren't the vines, but they're the tenants who look after the vineyard. John 15, Jesus himself's using this vineyard metaphor. Slightly different way. He's saying there's only one genuine vine in God's vineyard. And Jesus is saying, that's me. Branches that attempt to live in the land, in the vineyard, but refuse to be attached to Jesus, will be thrown away and destroyed. Only by attachment to the true vine is genuine and lasting security to be found. So just as the woman, the Samaritan woman of John 4, learned that Jerusalem was no longer a place of true worship, So the land as a holy place is no longer the avenue to blessings from God. Jesus has replaced both. He is reclaiming the universe for God. And just as the original creation mandate to Adam was go and fill this earth and subdue it, so too the Great Commission is go into all this earth and reclaim it for God. 
The Great Commission refuses to recognize any limitation on the Lord's claim on the earth. And that's the perspective that Paul has when he talks about the blessings bestowed on Abraham. In Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Not a matter of Judea or Canaan or the Levant from Wadi El Arish to the Euphrates, but the world. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that leads forward and through to the grandeur of the new heavens and the new earth. And there was Abraham aware of Eden, aware of what had been lost, and also looking at this land promise and seeing through it, not really staked in Canaan, yes, that was there, but it was there ultimately as a spiritual symbol of the better country, the heavenly fatherland, the realization of resumed and totally beatific fellowship with God hereafter. Two other things that I really ought to say something about. And the first of these is the prosperity of Abraham. Because this is raised not so much from the text of Scripture as from the modern deviation of the health and wealth gospel. The proponents of this view argue that through the crucifixion of Christ, Christians have inherited all the promises made to Abraham. And these are both spiritual and material. They focus on a text, I've been mentioning Galatians 3, Galatians 3.14, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. And they say Abraham was a rich man. And so every believer today has the right to claim the same blessings as Abraham enjoyed. It's a matter of exercising sufficient faith. Name it and claim it. Now there are many flaws in the arguments that are presented. It accords, for instance, to the word of human prayer, the power of the spoken decree of God. It's one thing to say that God's word brings into existence what he says. It's quite another to apply that at the level of human speech. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And equally, you have to finish Galatians 3.14 that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul in Galatians 3 is not talking about material wealth at all. He's talking about spiritual wealth. And he's talking about it looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. But when you come at their arguments from an Old Testament context, they've got one thing right. Abraham was a very 
rich man. We're told this repeatedly. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and went to Canaan. Later on, we're told that Abraham was able to put into the field 318 trained men born in his household. Abraham was not a solitary individual wandering around rootless in Canaan. He was a minor chieftain. 318 men born in his own household grossed the figure up. You're talking about somebody at the center of at least a thousand folk. Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And that was true also of the patriarchs. Isaac became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy and the envy of the Philistines. Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. So those who come with this health and wealth gospel and say, there's Abraham, the father of the faithful. He was a rich man. They've certainly got the facts of Scripture on their side in the assertion he was a very rich man. But how do those riches relate to God's covenant with Abraham? Remember, in the covenant, the focus was spiritual. That was the way in which God intended to be Abraham's very great reward. Not so much a matter of silver and gold and attendants and donkeys and whatever. I am your very great reward. Fellowship with him. The imminent God who created this realm so that it may respond to him was giving to Abraham the reward of being able to interact and enjoy fellowship. But even so, material blessings were a real feature of the Old Testament. God used them to build up the nation. He didn't just give Abraham the promise of having many descendants. He said they would be a mighty nation. They would have wealth. And God would use the wealth he gave to the people as a means of testimony. The Lord will send blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord did use material blessings to promote Israel's witness to the nations in pagan darkness around them. But the lesson was not that there was some inherent ability or superiority on the part of Israel, but on the fact that the Lord their God had given them this. And the ultimate Old Testament perspectives provided in Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And it's that perspective of faith that characterized the life of faithful Abraham. He was a mighty man. 318 in his personal army. He was a rich man. But did he boast in his riches? No. He boasted in the Lord. God may bless a believer in Abraham's day or in ours with wealth. But woe betide an individual who lets the pursuit of wealth become the target of his life. Worldly wealth, like the land promised to Abraham, can be a snare rather than a blessing. In his book, Jesus and the Land, Gary Burge brings out the significance of the land in this way. It was a good land, but it wasn't an easy land. It was a land that demanded faith. It was not yet paradise totally restored, but a land that would hone its people. It had to rely on God supplying it with rain. There was no Nile flowing through Canaan. The land was not empty, but filled with Canaanites and others to tempt Israel to compromise. Politically, it was a land where invading armies would pass through, going north or south. It was a land that constantly called its people to depend on God. And so too with wealth. Rightly understood, it is not an end in itself. To be used correctly, it requires an extraordinary faith such as Abraham possessed. It was Christ himself who said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And it perverts scriptural priorities to put wealth in place of trust and renewed fellowship with God himself. And finally, I can make mention of the Holy Spirit. Because this also perplexes many. Did Abraham know, experience, spiritual renewal from the Holy Spirit? And this isn't just Abraham. This is the Old Testament believer as a whole. The traditional view is that Old Testament believers, traditional Reformed view, I should say, is that Old Testament believers and New Testament believers alike are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because an individual can't save himself. It requires power, the power of God's Spirit. So Abraham's faith the faith that was able to put God in first place before all the riches that were God's gift didn't derive from any power that Abraham inherently possessed. It wasn't his personal aptitude. 
didn't come from his pagan environment. The God who commanded him to go, the God who commanded him to be perfect, empowered him by his spirit. And this truth of the regenerating work of the spirit was what Jesus expected Nicodemus as a teacher of Israel to know all about in John chapter 3. But you meet the objection. Doesn't Jesus also promise the Holy Spirit to his followers as something new? Doesn't he also say the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, as something that's still awaited? When you look at the Old Testament testimony to the Holy Spirit, his work's always just mentioned in connection with special individuals. Uh, There aren't really a considerable absence of references to his work in ordinary believers. You get special individuals, Bezalel and Aholiab, being equipped by the Spirit to construct the tabernacle. The kings of Israel, particularly David, are the Holy Spirit empowering him for the task. And isn't it also the case in John's Gospel? There's one place where it says, the Spirit was not yet. How can the Holy Spirit have been there in Old Testament times and you can still make sense of the tremendous reality of the day of Pentecost? And those who bring that objection, many of them now seem to focus in on John 14, 17, where Jesus says of the Spirit, He abides with you and will be in you. And they say, here are two ministries of the Holy Spirit. Abides with, and they take that to refer to the work of regeneration. Will be in you, that's what's going to happen at Pentecost. It's still future. It is something that wasn't really known in Old Testament times. And perhaps relates more to holiness of life than to regeneration. But I don't think that distinction can bear the stress that's put on it. Because it's not just the case that there is no new life without the Spirit. It's also the case there is no holy walk before the Lord without the Spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God It's only those who are in the Spirit who can do so. It is the Spirit who gives life. And that's not just the first spark of life. It is the totality of spiritual life thereafter. Abraham's faith was active along with his works. And his faith was completed by his works. And so scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was the friend of God. I want to leave you with two thoughts. How do we deal with this question of the Spirit and Abraham? One answer was suggested by Gary Fredericks some years ago. That perhaps we really ought to be talking about that acknowledged aspect of the Spirit. The Spirit empowering for service. 
That was the case for specific people in Old Testament times. And he argued you can make a good case for that being extended to the whole family of God in the New Testament. What was a gift for a few became a gift for many. And he related it to the difference between mission in the Old Testament and mission in the New Testament. In the closing verses of Luke's Gospel, it's recorded that after the Lord had formally appointed the apostles as his witnesses to proclaim the Gospel to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, he then went on and said, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's where Luke begins also in Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses. So Fredericks argued that as is customarily the case, the position in the Old Testament, the people of God were a beacon of light in a world of darkness. And the main focus of mission was to attract people. The nations would flow to Jerusalem, attracted by the testimony of the word and the witness of God's people. But in the New Testament, that is reversed. The people of God are to go out into the world to reclaim it. No longer passively awaiting the nations to come to them, but Jonah-like to go to Nineveh in a pattern after the seeking and saving of the Son of Man himself. And so there is this ministry, Fredericks argued, of the Holy Spirit inaugurated at Pentecost for the whole church and a ministry of reaching out that can only be effectively achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's one way of dealing with this. Uh, Abraham's life is a testimony to the regenerating and sanctifying influences of the Spirit, but he did not yet live as one who had the mandate from God to go out. The task was rather to focus on the land and to have there the sanctuary. But there's another approach I would suggest, and it's one that I, I rather favor myself. That the difference between Old and New Testaments, as regards the ministry of the Spirit, is in the area of intelligent personal interaction. And this again, just as Frederick's view was very much related to the change in the nature of the mission task of the church between Old and New Testament, this view is also related to the change that occurred with the coming of Christ in the church's awareness of the doctrine of the triune God. The Old Testament church did not have great light on this matter if any at all. So it's one thing to say the Holy Spirit's been the one who's always created new spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is the one who's always promoted holiness in the life of a believer. But it's quite another thing to say that the believers re realized that. 
It's one thing to benefit from the action of another. And it's another thing to know how that has come to you. The Spirit comes and goes as he pleases. And he may be active in the life of an individual without that person being aware of it or being able to articulate it. The Old Testament believer was largely unaware of the work of the Spirit within him, was largely had obscured views at best of who the Spirit of God was because the reality of the triune God had not yet been revealed. And that's why there is an absence of testimony to the Spirit in the life of Abraham. That truth of the Spirit's work, the Spirit was at work, but the revelation of that truth had not been disclosed to any great extent at all. There is a world of difference between the testimony of Isaiah 63.10 regarding the conduct of the Israelites where it said, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. You can rebel and grieve the Holy Spirit and not know what you're doing, how it impacts the Spirit. But there's a world of difference between that and Paul's injunction in Ephesians 4.3, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve is a command, not a statement of fact, it's a command. And it implies that the believer is now aware of a personal relationship with the indwelling spirit. Do not grieve. In some respects, that's not as strong as an expression as resist the spirit or quench the spirit. But it's intimately personal. And it is indicative, I think, of the difference that occurs with the coming in state of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And that links back to the temple theme. The temple where God would meet with his people. Paul says, you, plural, are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in you. Don't you see that? Addressing the community. But he also It says to the individual, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. He expects the church in Corinth to know about the personal reality of the indwelling spirit in a way that was inaccessible to any Old Testament believer. So then when we look back to Abraham, we look back to the father of the faithful, The father of the faithful who was as dependent on the action of the Spirit in imparting new life, the action of the Spirit in sustaining spiritual life as any of God's children are in any generation. Abraham's faith and Abraham's obedience did not exist apart from the empowering of the Spirit. But he had a vision of faith that stretched beyond the very real physical blessings accorded to him in this life because he put God in first place and looked forward to the far more perfect realization of blessing and fellowship in the better country, the heavenly country. The father of the faithful was given remarkable insight into the seed who would descend from him and what he would accomplish. 
Particularly, I think that's true in Mount Moriah, when Isaac was bound to the altar. But, even so, Abraham's knowledge was limited by the circumstances of that stage of God's redemptive disclosure. There was still much that Abraham, man of faith though he was, was waiting still to be accomplished even before the new heavens and the new earth. And his faith stands as a challenge to us who are privileged with the greater measure of disclosure, divine disclosure, that we now enjoy. We see Jesus. We look back at his completed work. And we are privileged to interact with, meaningfully interact with the indwelling spirit and he with us. A better covenant awaiting the consummation of the better country. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Mackay, for that very comprehensive walk through the Old and the New Testament. I'm sure we've learned much from that. There is a time for questions. Professor Mackay, thank you very much for your, uh, your talk and most informative, and thank you for coming to visit us. My question is um, that as we look uh, around us, uh, within our church, the visible church, we have those that know the Lord and those who don't. And there seems to be um, certainly a sense when you're in the fellowship of a Christian, you know that you're in a fellowship with a Christian because there's a distinctness there. You're at one with them in Christ. And although the Old Testament believer would not be able to formulate, perhaps, as you, as you said, the, uh, the doctrine of the Spirit, surely there must have still been that distinction, that awareness of the difference between those who truly believed, men and women of grace, and those who merely assented. Yes, I think that is very much the case. Uh, Christ himself, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, uh, emphasized that uh, in the work of the Spirit, you don't know where the wind comes from or where it blows, but you see the impact of it. And I think it was very much the case that in Old Testament times, uh, the people of God were aware that there were those uh, who were truly committed to the Lord. I think that in some measure was uh, taught to them by, by the remnant principle. Uh, if the Lord had not left to us a remnant, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But that wasn't articulated uh, with specific reference to the Spirit. It was seen as God's work as a whole, that there were those who were left by him, there were those who were loyal to him. Uh, and that, I think, is, is part of the testimony of the lives of prophets like Jeremiah, who was very much aware of the distinction in Jerusalem in its final days before the capture by Babylon of those who were the Lord's and those whose religion was nominal at best. So spirit was there, spirit was at work. Those who were, whose hearts were renewed by the spirit could recognize a kindred believer although I don't think they would have been able to articulate it in our New Testament terms. Uh, 
because the time wasn't yet right uh, for a... They didn't even fully understand the person of Christ to come, far less the Spirit, although they, they had essential truth regarding him revealed to him. So I'd view the two things in the parallel way. Thank you once again for a very encouraging and edifying paper. I was just wondering, um, with regard to your second hypothesis, with regard to the difference of the ministry of the Spirit um, in the Old and New Testament, uh, how it is that David can um, say in Psalm 51, verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me, if he was not aware of the Spirit working in his life. There is always, um, in dealing with David, the realization that he's the king, and we have specific mention also of the Spirit's interaction with the previous king, Saul. And at one level, one can understand uh, David's words as a prayer that the Lord would not leave him in the way in which he had left Saul. And that's a focus on the Spirit uh, empowering for office. Now, I, I don't want to draw too far apart the Spirit's work saying that's a totally different compartment from the spirit dealing with an individual. Because obviously, one aspect of one who was truly led by the spirit to be um, a king in Israel was one who was also in harmony with the Lord's will, was converted. But I think that David is here in Psalm 51, is speaking in the first instance with a primary focus on the Spirit's work, the endowment of the Spirit for his office. He is praying against the reality of being left like Saul. And there is... I th this is one area where I'm rather... can see the, the merit of Frederick's view... Uh, that there is a fair measure of similarity between that and the ministry of the Spirit as the Spirit of Salvation, the regenerating Spirit. So I think David is there in a very privileged position. And that was often true. When you read the Old Testament, uh, you are reading the works of those who are on the mountaintops of spiritual experience, the Abrahams, the Moses, the Davids, and the prophets, the vast majority of the people were not, not there. And at times, even those men were grasping to realize the, the, the mind-boggling extent of what was happening. Having thought my answer out now, I would answer now by saying that the Lord was using the Spirit as the equipping model to teach David some truths about the totality of the Spirit's ministry. It does anticipate a New Testament truth, but the extent to which that was accessible to David at the time and others, I'm not, I don't think we really know. So that, that, that's where I would go in that one. When did, as a church, we lose sight of this restoration of the whole 
of of the universe because it does seem in these days that when we think of salvation we think of it purely in terms of salvation from sin and not a restoration of the the whole physical universe it's a very good question i'm not sufficiently skilled in the history of thought the last few centuries to give you a definitive answer but my perception is that we're not always at the peaks and when the reformation the reformation had uh, an all-encompassing vision but the spiritual ardor of the church declined and i can't put dates and i'm not going to try just now to it but it didn't just decline in terms of a world vision it declined in the personal core of the need for individual salvation and when there was a measure of revival in various places the focus was on putting first things first which is are you saved now a very necessary focus I'm not trying to decry it but it's not the whole story and one needs to build forward from that so when did we lose it or why did we lose the church lose it? I think it was in a period of decline, um, shall we say, before the Wesleys or Whitfield or people like that, there was then a, a, a tremendous awareness of the need for the, the straightforward, basic personal gospel message. And it's only through further challenges that... Uh, the other emphases have come back into prominence. Uh, for, for instance, I don't like doing this, but if one looks at America, it's always easier to see other folks' faults than your own. <laughs> if we look at America, um, the, there are many fundamentalist teachers there. Very much great emphasis, personal salvation. Now, not decrying that, great. But it gives a very restricted view of what the church's task is and it needs to be broadened because the the goal is that of the full lordship of Christ and that's not just that that's personal but societal as well and it's a struggle especially when the church itself at the level of personal commitment is very weak uh, and that's where we are today. Just a follow-up question on the last. Um, uh, when you say that the church's vision for lordship over all things needs to be broadened, I was wondering if you could maybe articulate that uh, a little bit more specifically. And, and how does that relate to the church's mission? If the church's mission is the Great Commission, is there sort of a Great Commission plus in which also there is a restoration or transformation of culture? Or at what level does that further task exist? Making disciples of all nations is not the same as just leading individuals to a personal commitment. The disciple is one whose total life is a reflection now, I'm not sure I've got your point correctly, but the, the really tricky one is where does the church 
as church tasks stop? And where does the Christian Institute take over? If I can put it that way. It's a very, if that's what your question is, um, I don't have the answer. And I think that it's a matter of there not perhaps being one single answer. It will depend on circumstances, on abilities. On, because, well, one of the biggest problems is the fact that the church is so fragmented into congregations and denominations and the strength of the church should be the harmony of its witness. And an institution like the Christian Institute, at least it draws people from all sorts of Christian backgrounds. And to that extent, there is a strength, there is a harmony, there is a building up. Um, but quite... I don't think I can give you a rule of thumb to say this is the dividing line and this is not. But if nobody else is doing it, then the organized church should be doing it. And it may be that there comes a time when the balance will swing. Um, the Church of Christ will be here long after the Christian Institute's gone. Your comments previously made me think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and cheap and costly grace. His answer for the rebuilding of Germany after the war was a mixture, but mainly costly grace. Would you agree with that? Costly grace is what the church is lacking. And if one probes a little bit further and asks why is it lacking, I would say it's lacking, it's because the Lord hasn't given leadership to the church. It's remarkable when you look back in church history how the Lord has used individuals. Uh, fallible men, um, Luther and Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, so on, fallible men, but they were central figures whose ministry was supremely blessed. And we're living in a day where that doesn't seem to be the case. Now that may be because it's always easier to work out who Calvin was after he's dead. We, we, we are all very, it, it's easy to work out after the event. And perhaps there's a bit of that in it. But it seems that the, we are, as individuals can be inspired at the human level to greater endeavor through the word of exhortation, through the example of others, through a living and vibrant Christian leadership. And the church in the West lacks that leadership. If there was any area where we should make a matter for prayer, it's in the area of the Lord raising up those whom he would use to galvanize the efforts of others. There's a tremendous body of goodwill throughout the Christian church, but it's fragmented and it so often suffers from defeatism. The Lord in the past has used individuals and we, I think we can legitimately plead with them 
to do the same again. And that is where, inspired by such examples, it's a matter of our weakness. We shouldn't need it at one level. We have got this tremendous example of Christ himself. So, but we live up suboptimally. We're not at the peaks. We're down in the valleys. And to get us out of those valleys, the Lord has used that in the past. And I think that's what we should plead with them for for the future. That there would be a willingness to commit, to spend and be spent in the Lord's name. I want to say thank you very much indeed to Professor Mackay for that talk and for the way you've handled some very perceptive questions.